Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast. Our mission of teaching people to love God by showing them how much He loves us starts right now. Well, notice there in verse 17, you know, have you ever met somebody that's been so radically changed by the Lord that their life completely changes? Have you met anybody like that? Maybe your life was like that when you came to Christ for salvation and your life was radically changed. And you would expect someone who's had that kind of change on the inside to display some sort of change of characteristic on the outside. You would expect to see Christ lived out in their lives. And just stop and think of how different that you and I are from the world. First of all, God made you and I. So God made you just the way that you are. If you're like me, then you're an introvert. And if you are in a group of people, if you're like me, you'll find me in the corner. And there'll be a whole group of people, and I'll be the guy in the corner, and when somebody's walking up to me, I'll be thinking, oh no, they're coming over here. You know, I'm going to have to find words to say, you know, introverted. And people say, well, Bob, why are you in the ministry then? I don't know. I don't know why I am. It's You're going to have to ask the Lord that. But my wife is an extrovert. And everybody in Georgetown knows Miss Lori. She's just known all over. As a matter of fact, I am known as Lori's husband. That's how I'm known in Georgetown. And the couple that we bought our church property from, I saw them in the grocery store one day. And they came up and they said, hey, we're so glad we ran into you. We want to know if we can come and have coffee with you in your office. And I'm thinking, maybe they need some counseling. Maybe they have a, a Bible question or whatever, and they want to ask it. And they said, well, we've heard all about this, Lori. And could you ask her to come to coffee too? We want to meet her. That was the only reason why they wanted to have coffee. It was sort of a bum, a bum, a bummer, you know, kind of a letdown. But, you know, extroverts are, or, or introverts rather are sort of used to that kind of thing. You know, we want to meet your extrovert wife. And everybody knows Lori. But I want you to know that God doesn't make mistakes. And God made you just the way you are. He made you your skin color. He gave you your eye color. He gave you your personality, the kind of humor that you laugh at or the kind of love stories that you like to watch. My my wife is habitually watching the Hallmark Channel. She loves the Hallmark Channel. And uh, God made you the way you are. God made you the size you are, at least in the beginning. He made you the size that you are. Like me, I have grown on my own a little bit. God made you the way that you are. And he's given you your gifts. When the Lord saved you and I, he intended for you and I to be led by the Holy Spirit. Intended that you and I are united in the glory of the Lord. That together during worship, as we're singing and praising the Lord, that what makes us one is that we're worshiping the same God and giving him glory. It's been said that when you're in Rome, do as the Romans. But 
I don't think that that applies to Christianity. When you're in the world, you should do as the Lord wills, not as the world does. Uh, Notice in verse 17, Paul talks about how that there are some believers that though they're saved, they walk like the world. Notice here it says, according to Paul, we're not to walk as the Gentiles walk. And he says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. And so here, Paul is exhorting you and I to walk as believers in the Lord and to really apply the work of Christ in our lives in a way that people know that we're saved. But he begins then in verse 17 to define what he means by don't walk as the unbelievers walk. In verse 17, he exhorts them to walk in a way where it pleases the Lord. Notice he talks about those who walk in the futility of their mind. They don't listen to the things of the Lord anymore. You know anybody like that, that maybe once used to walk with the Lord, but now they're not listening. They're not tuned into the Lord anymore. I heard this story about an old man who was very hard of hearing. He was like my dad. My dad is 94. And when we talk on the phone, it's a one-way conversation. You know, he, he doesn't hear what I'm saying. And yesterday, he said, well, I can hear you, okay? You just got to talk slower. So I'm trying to talk slower, Dad, you know, kind of a thing. And uh, so what I do now is I just call him on the phone. And when I'm on the phone, I just let him talk. And the other day when I called him, I was on my way to San Marcos, about a 45-minute drive from Georgetown. And he told me all about how he doesn't drink enough water. And, and like for 45 minutes, but I just let him talk. You know, I love him so much, but I just let him talk. But he's hard of hearing. It's hard to talk to him. And I heard about a man. He was so hard of hearing, and he was having chest pains. And so he went to his doctor. He's just an old man. And so he goes in and gets a checkup, and the doctor gives him some advice, and he leaves. And two weeks later, the doctor sees Mr. Jones on the sidewalk, and he's walking down the street. And he has the most beautiful girl on his arm. She's about 20 years old. She's a knockout, like a model. And so the doctor walks up to Mr. Jones and he says, hey, Mr. Jones, how are you feeling since you came in? And the old man says, I feel great since I visited you and I've been applying your advice every day. And he said, well, Mr. Jones, what was that advice? And he said, well, you told me to go out and get a hot mama and be cheerful. And the doctor said, no, no, Mr. Jones, I didn't say that. I said, you've got a heart murmur, be careful. (laughs) There's times when we don't hear from the Lord right. But the world doesn't listen at all. Their minds are made up of futility. It's empty, isn't it? The phrase in the futility of their mind, if you're reading from the King James Version, then it's mindless. And Many of you have seen someone this week do something that was mindless. Has anybody seen anyone? Or maybe you did something mindless, but you're not going to raise your hand up, are you? But that, but um, our second daughter, Jenna, is the most awkward girl you'd ever imagine. And she loves awkward stories. Does anybody like awkward stories? And she's always, she comes over and she's got, Dad, you won't believe what I did. And the other day, she's a, 
a speech therapist in the other day, and she works with little kids. And the other day they were working with a craft and somehow it tied into speech therapy, but she turned the little girl's hands pink. They were working with like, you know, dye that you dye Easter eggs with. And she didn't know what to do because the mom was coming to pick her up and here the girl's got pink hands, you know, kind of a thing. But there are those that do some pretty mindless things. I remember the other day I was driving down the street in Georgetown. It's Williams Drive. That's our main drive. And it's always busy. And I was going to get barbecue for lunch. And I was on my way back. And I saw this woman. And she was pushing a stroller across the street. She wasn't in a crosswalk or whatever. She was just going straight across the street. And she had a little kid in the stroller. And as she was walking across the street, she started running. And she had a phone in her in her, the crick of her neck. And she's, she's kind of pushing the stroller, talking or whatever. And when she got near the median, the wheels turned suddenly and she did a whole 360 right there with the stroller in the middle of the street. Now thinking how mindless that you would just go across the street with a little kid and not go in the, in the crosswalk. I'm like, Mr. Safety, you know, you're not in this sidewalk or, or a crosswalk. And not only that, but the funniest part is, and I can find humor in just about anything is, uh, the look on the little kid's face as he was doing the 360, you know, it's like right at Disneyland kind of a thing. But there are people that you and I associate every day who do mindless things. And the most mindless thing that you can do is to turn your back on the Lord and attune him out and not listen to him anymore. Regarding the things that people are mindlessly willing to bow down and worship, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 44, 18, 44, 18, they do not know nor understand, speaking of false gods that people have fashioned or carved or made. These false gods are not alive. They do not know nor understand, for he, the Lord, has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand, nor no one considers in his heart nor is there knowledge, nor understanding to say, I've burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I've also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And since I make the rest of it an abomination, shall I fall down before a block of wood? In other words, should you worship a piece of wood that you've carved into an idol? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Speaking of the falsehood of idolatry. If you've ever been to a museum where they have archaeological items from a dig in Mesopotamia or in Iraq, some of those places, you'll find all of these little idols that mankind has made over the years, thousands of years. They make these little idols. Some are ivory some are wood, some are stone. But these are the idols that the family worshipped. And so they would fashion these or they would buy them. Remember, Paul ran into a guy that made the little idols to Diana and he got ran out of town because of, uh, you know, telling people that Diana was a false god. He got ran out of town. But these little idols and so the parents would buy these little idols or make one themselves and they would set it on the mantle of the fireplace. And they would tell the kids, this is a God that we worship. This is the God that's going to bless our crops or make mom and dad fruitful so we have lots of kids. 
Or, you know, if you're looking for a spouse, you know, bow down and pray to this God, this false God, or whatever it is. And so they would worship these little false gods and all. And so here Isaiah is talking about how that those idols are dead. He describes how people make their own gods. It's crazy to think about how somebody would take a piece of wood that fell from a tree and, and shape it and bow down and worship it, is what he's saying. My question for you is, do you and I make our own gods? Are there things that you and I have fashioned in our lives that take up our time and our talent? Are there things that you and I do occupy our time with? If we make a God of our own choosing, we're fooling ourselves into thinking that that thing's going to last. Now, personally, for me, I have no other gods that I worship. Just kidding. It's NFL season. So, you know, Green Bay Packers would probably be the thing that I probably worship the most. But uh, I'm kidding. You're supposed to laugh at that. Anyway, um, this will probably be my last time here, huh? <laughs> I mentioned the Packers, and now this will be the last time I'll be here. I, uh, for the longest time, I've wanted a Ducati motorcycle, an XDLS. It's about 1,300cc, about 160 horsepower. I made the mistake of going and sitting on one. And then that was it. Then, you know, I'm bashing my little idol, you know. And so I really think that when a Christian prays, you ought to pray not only for your needs, but your desires too. That way, as you're praying, the will of the Lord will filter out all the things that you desire. And so I found a picture of this Ducati motorcycle and I cut it out and I put it in my prayer journal. I stapled it there to a page and I put the date there and I was praying for it. And uh, I was having a meeting with my office manager and we were talking about something. I don't remember what it was, but I had to open my prayer journal and there on the page was this motorcycle in my journal. And Miss Sarah said, well, Pastor Bob, what's that motorcycle doing there in your prayer journal? God's not a genie. And I said, well, that's true. But I said, haven't you learned to pray for your desires too? That way God can kind of give you a yes or a no. Because if you just act on your desire, it may or may not be from the Lord. And then there's all kinds of people that wind up in debt. You know, you buy that big four-wheel drive F-150 with, you know, the big 20s on it and the big tires and all of that. And, and the payment's like a house payment. And, you know, you think, well, I don't have any money, but I look good driving this truck. So filtering your desires from your prayer journal and praying. I think you should pray for your needs, certainly, but you should pray for your desires, too. But we can choose all kinds of things to be an idol for us. And so bringing your desires before the Lord is a way of doing away with idolatry. Lord, you have the last say in this. I'm going to follow your will, Lord. I might want that thing, you know. But the Ducati motorcycle is only one in a long list of things that I put in my prayer journal. Some were legit, 
And some weren't. Some the Lord chose to bless me with. Others he cautiously steered me away from. If you're not sure whether you practice any idolatry in your life, then ask yourself a question. Who created me? If your answer is that you've bought into the lie which is evolution, that's idolatry. You are fashioned and made by the Lord. Who do I ultimately trust? Who do I go to for advice? Whom do I look for for truth? Whom do I look for security and for happiness? Who is in charge of my future? If your answer to any one of those questions is anything other than Jehovah God, you might want to check your heart. Because the Lord wants to be Lord of all of those things. Make sure you're not worshiping something that was made by your own hands or the hands of men. Remember back in Genesis chapter 31, the setting is that Jacob had gone and he met with Laban and he wanted Rachel as his wife. She was beautiful. She was the one he wanted. But on his wedding night, he served seven years for her and on his wedding night, it wound up being Leah. And so Laban's excuse was, well, around here, we give the oldest daughter first. But, you know, so Jacob loved Rachel so much that he said, well, I'll serve another seven years. And he did. And then they started having kids and Leah. And then finally, the Lord opened up Rachel's womb and she started having kids and they were prosperous. But it came time to leave. And so they left one morning without telling Laban. And, you know, they were taking Laban's grandkids. And, you know, I'm very, very close with my grandkids. We have two little boys, our grandsons. I'm their favorite. I just want to let you know that. And my wife tries to buy their love with gifts and Hot Wheels and things like that. And they just bring them over to me to open. And we play with them. You know, it's kind of cool. I'm their favorite. But uh, I wonder if that isn't how Laban felt. You know, he found out that Jacob had taken his two daughters and their grandkids and left. And I often threaten my daughter if she thinks about moving out of the state of Texas, you know, uh, she's going to catch my wrath too. I would chase her and uh, bring the, at least the grandkids back. But anyway, uh, so Laban pursues them and they're out in the wilderness. And uh, so Laban comes up, hey, you took my daughters, and my kids. You know, he was calling his grandkids his kids. And and also, you've stolen my household idols, my gods. And Jacob said, well, we haven't stolen anything. If there's somebody among us whom your idols are found, let him be put to death. We haven't stolen anything. All the while, little Miss Rachel had taken her father's household idols and stolen them. And she hid them underneath her bed in her tent. And when Laban searched the tent, she very cleverly sat there on her bed. And so he didn't discover them. And so Rachel took these little idols back to Canaan with her. I think that you and I do the same thing in marriage when we introduce an idol into our marriage relationship. It could be anything that you worship. 
When your spouse is expecting and has every right to trust you to worship Jehovah God, there's times when we start to think in the futility of our mind, I want this thing, and so I'll do everything I can, work overtime, and I'll give it all my time and my talent and my treasure to obtain that thing. And sometimes even in family, we introduce an idol that ought not to be so. Look at verse 18. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, that doesn't sound at all like our world that we live in today, does it? (laughs) Yeah, and you can't even turn around the channels. I turned on the TV in my hotel room last night just for a couple of minutes, and I had to turn it right back off again. In that time, in just a few minutes, I saw adultery, heard the F word, and I think probably about five or six other things. Man, Lord, I just turned it off, just read. <laughs> Lewdness within cleanness is all around us, isn't it? Having their understanding darkened. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes about the hearts and the minds of worldly people in the time when he was ministering. 2,000 years ago. And he mentions the foolishness of their hearts, that they were darkened and professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they began to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. How many of you would like to take a trip with me to Maui? You want to go to Maui with me? You're like, we're not going. Maybe Pastor Ben. But we're not going with you anywhere. We, you know, this has been long. We heard you for a while. No, we're not going. But if some of you are brave enough to go with, to Maui with me in your mind right now, in your imagination, let's go. We get on the airplane, we fly there, and the first thing that we do is we want to go to the beach. And so we go to Big Beach, and we're going to body surf and snorkel. And, and so there we are. We're getting ready to go in and enjoy the water, and you see this young man come from the parking lot and he walks down to the shore and he puts his toes in the water and raises up his hands and he begins to worship the ocean. Oh, Mother Ocean, you're the one that made me. And he begins to worship, you know, praise the ocean. And then he looks up in the sky, sees a seagull circling around his cooler. And uh, he begins to worship the seagull. Thank you, Father Seagull, for protecting me and watching over me. And he began begins to worship the animals and the ocean. And you and I, we're standing there and we're thinking, how foolish. We know God made the heavens and the earth. The heavens declare his glory, we read. And so we think, well, how silly that is that somebody would look at creation and worship the creation instead of the creator who's blessed forevermore. But believe me, when you go over there, the locals there worship all kinds of things that are not the Lord. (laughs) Sea turtles and all. You better believe it. And in Paul's day, people were worshiping all kinds of different things. 
It's sort of ironic to think about in the 1960s. How that there were men with PhDs that left their position at colleges and they made their way to India to visit some ashram that was there of an avatar and then supposedly this man had attained some kind of godhood. And so these men with PhDs ate this man's bodily waste as a way to somehow get closer to this man who said that he had become God. Even the Beatles during the 60s, they made their way there to India and to somehow seek enlightenment. And when they came back, they were worse off than when they went. When it comes to idolatry and Eastern mysticism for you and I, I say, just let it be. It was kind of a joke. I don't think. They laughed at that in Georgetown. I'm your guest speaker. You should be nice. You should laugh, even though you don't, you didn't get it. You know, the Beatles wrote, let it, let it be. Okay, good. Let's move on then. And, uh, Look again in verse 18. This really is my last time here, huh? You're like, you're going to have to come with better humor, man. The old man was hearing that was kind of funny, but I don't know. Anyway, notice in verse 18, being alienated or separated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. The ungodly live in a fallen state. Those that live in the world, they have a body and they have a soul. But so does my dog. She has a body and soul. I do know, as a matter of fact, though, that she's going to go to heaven. I don't know about your dog, but my dog's going to be there, I think, one day. But that's just my opinion. But uh, anyway, those people that have a body and a soul, they only live for bodily appetites. The things that satisfy them when they're hungry, they eat and all. Now, you and I do this on Thanksgiving Day. It's next month believe it or not. And so you're sitting around the Thanksgiving table and there's a big turkey there and a ham and you're having stuffing and all of that. And, you know, you you cram your mouth with all this good food. And I'm blessed because my wife is such an amazing cook and all of that. And we always have an amazing Thanksgiving. The table's just full of good food. And I can't have just one plate. I have two, two big plates and I pile it as high as I can. And I push myself back from the table and say, I'll never have another bite of food in my life. I'm so full. And then my wife calls from the kitchen. Hey, does anybody want pecan pie? I'll have some pecan pie. Well, you want some whipped cream on it? Okay, you know, whipped cream. And put it on there and you eat it. And then I go in the living room to watch the football game. It's just starting, and then about an hour and a half later, at halftime, I'm there at the fridge. Now, I've already sworn twice that I would never have another bite. But I'm thinking, you know, the pecan pie's gone, but there's a pumpkin pie in the fridge. I think I'll have some of that. You want some whipped cream on it? Sure. And you have the whipped cream on it, and you're thinking, you know, I'm so much different than the world. You know what? We have our appetites, too as Christians. And our appetites just can't be in the things of the world. Our heart, our thirst, our desires must pan after the things of the Lord. 
as a deer pants for the water brook, our appetites, our desires are to be in the Lord, not in the things of the world. The Bible says that God is spirit. And those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But the spirit of the ungodly man is dead. He lives in a fallen state. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, 1 John 5, 11, it says, this is the record that God has given us eternal life. Speaking about those that are born again. And this life is in the Son. And he that has Son has life. And he that hath not the Son hath not life. Look again at what it says. He that has the Son has life. The question you should ask is, how do I know that I'm born again? How do I know that I have eternal life? I think that you know because your life will produce the evidence that you're changed. So that you're not living after the ways of the world. We're to be different. I am now seeking the things of the kingdom. I'm not seeking the things of this world around me. I'm changed. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, which speaks of leaving worldly things behind, not having any idols in our lives. And he said, you take up the cross and you follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever desires to walk after the world will lose his life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And who doesn't want that? For what profit is it if a man gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I'd like to ask you a question. What's your greatest ambition in life? What is it that you'd like to accomplish so that when you're in heaven with the Lord and you look back, if you even care what happened here on earth anymore, you look back, what do you hope to see? To remember about your life what you accomplished. What's your greatest ambition? I recently read an internet poll, and they asked that question, what's your greatest ambition? And there's some of the responses. And so one person said, well, I'd like to have a job I don't despise. <laughs> I don't know if you're in that situation or not. I not now. I love my job now. I'm I'm good. We're okay. But I've had jobs in the past where, you know, your boss, your manager just just makes things miserable for you. You know. Another person said, "Well, I'd like to have both my parents back. I can only imagine what my life and the lives of my kids would be like if they were still here. Life would be so much better." One guy said, "I'd like to have hair again." Would it be nice if you could have that? One person said, well, I'd like to be disgustingly rich. Right now, I'm only disgusting. <laughs> I'd like to be disgustingly rich. I like that. <laughs> For you and I, in our life ambition, what we hope to accomplish, we need to measure that ambition 
against the long-term consequences of seeking that thing? What is the true value of things that you gain if in gaining them you lose your own soul? Jesus told the story of a rich man who gained great wealth. And he had so much that he built big storehouses and barns to store everything that he had. And so as he was building them, he even produced more. And so he thought, well, I'll tear everything down and I'll build bigger. And so he built bigger and all of that. That's what I desire to do. And then I'll leave a, live a life of ease. I'll be able to kick back and just enjoy my wealth. And God said of him, you fool. Tonight, your soul is going to be required of you. And then who will have your riches? Life's short, man. And you and I all know people whose lives ended suddenly. They didn't know that it was going to end suddenly. And you and I know people who were not prepared. What good is it if you have everything and lose your soul? The question is, now that you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, what are the things that you should seek in your life? What is it like to live a life in the spirit? Not only having a body and a soul, but being born again. What is that like for us? You and I know that we have eternal life, that we're going to Go home to be with the Lord in glory. We know that, but what do we do in the meantime? Jesus gave us three commands. He told you and I to ask and seek and knock. Now, asking for our needs takes faith, doesn't it? Lord, you said you would meet my needs. Here they are. And you come before the Lord daily with your prayer journal and your Bible on your lap. And after you've read and worshiped the Lord, now you're going to ask. And Lord, I pray. And you pray for your kids, of course. And you pray for the, your, this ministry here in Lubbock. And you pray for your rent. And you pray, you know, Lord, help us make the car payment or whatever. And you're asking. Lord, you said to ask. And that takes faith. Though you don't see the answer, it takes faith to ask, right? Faith is the, the uh, substance of things not seen. And though I haven't seen the answer, Jesus said to ask. And in the Greek, the way that you parse the ask and seek and knock is it's a continual, every day, knocking and, and all. And so you're asking the Lord, and when the Lord answers your prayer, then you write the word answered next to your prayer request in your journal and write the date down. Why? Well, because like me, sometimes you don't have a good day. You know what I mean. And life is hard and depressing. And things don't turn out the way we wanted them to. You might have baggage from your past. Things that have happened to you. Or things that you've done. Mistakes. And they haunt you. And all. 
And the reason why you write answered next to your prayer request is when you're having a bad day. And as you read through your journal, you see the word answered, answered, answered. God answers prayer, but it takes faith. To seek, well, that takes hope, doesn't it? Because when you ask, you're seeking the answer to that request. Whether you go to the mailbox and and hope that the answer's in your mail, or whatever it is, you're seeking the answer. And daily as you're walking, as you're praying, you have the expectation God's going to answer that prayer. That's seeking. It takes hope. Lord, I know you're going to answer it. I'm looking for your answer. But the greatest of the three takes love. That's where you knock. If you have a metal door, it sounds like that. And you're knocking. Where do you knock when you pray? On heaven's door. And the Lord opens. And you have access, Paul said earlier in chapter 3, you and I have access to the throne room of God. In Hebrews, it says that we come boldly to the throne room of grace where we find help in our time of need. And when you knock every day, That's when you love the Lord. And just like John the Beloved was in the upper room on the night Jesus was betrayed and he was found there with his head lying on the breast of the Lord and listening to that heartbeat of the Lord. That's what you and I are to do daily. Lord, I'm asking for this need and I'm looking for your answer. But what's your heart about it? Lord, what's your will? What would you like me to do with this request? If it's a desire, Lord, what's your desire? You know, about my desires, Lord, what's your heart? What should I do? And in the knocking on heaven's door and fellowshipping with the Lord as your your ear is to his breast, and you're seeking the heart of the Lord, that is where the Lord makes it okay with us that we don't know the whole picture. Lord, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm okay with not knowing. Why? Because I'm in your presence. And by the way, Lord, I, I sort of forgot about the things I was asking about. Because in your presence is the fullness of joy. And suddenly I find myself joyful and at peace with not knowing everything. Because like me, you might be a person that likes to know where they're going and wants to know the answer to why. But the importance and why knocking is the most important aspect of prayer is when the Lord makes it okay to not know why. I just know you, Lord, and that's okay. Because I find the fullness of joy here in your presence, Lord. And that's okay. Have your way, Lord. And so, Lord, that Ducati I was praying about, whether I have it or not, I don't care. 
Well, maybe a little bit. But Lord, I know you're going to take care of my needs. And I don't have to worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own, amen? I only for today just need to make the next right choice. That's all God expects. Well, I thought Christianity was more than that. No, it's not. I'm a simple man. I'm a simple pastor. I don't pretend to be anything else. And for me, I just want to make the next right choice. I don't know what the next right choice is. I just want the Lord to lead me. And I find those answers as I knock. Not when I ask and seek, but when my ear is to his chest and I ask the Lord, what's your heart about this next decision? you'll find peace with the Lord as you knock. This week, my prayer for you is that you'll knock every day. And that my prayer for you is that in your prayer journal, the word answered will be there just time after time after time. In the meantime, while you're seeking that answer, hope in the Lord. God's heard your prayers. But the most important is the knocking. This week, knock on heaven's door. And you'll find that peace that you need in your time of need. Amen? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we bring our time to a close today, I want to thank you for letting us be together. And Lord, for teaching us what the world is like and what we should be and how different we should be from the world. We're not to live in the futility of our mind. Our mind's to be fixed on you. So speak to us, Lord, from your word as we worship, as we pray, and give us a week of fruitfulness, Lord, as we seek you, Lord. I pray once again, please bring Pastor Ben back safely, Lord, from his trip. And I pray for Calvary Lubbock, Lord, that you would fill this place with your spirit, that there would be immense fruit, that, God, you would bless with exceeding blessings, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Josh. I hope this message has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. If it has, we would love to hear your story of how it has impacted you, or especially if you responded to the invitation to receive Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior. To get in touch or to receive more information, please contact us by phone at 806-799-2227 or send an email to calvarylubbock at hotmail.com. Again, that phone number is 806-799-2227. Also, if you want to partner with us financially to take the gospel to West Texas and the world, please click on the Donate button on calvarychapellubbock.org. Thanks for listening to the podcast. May God richly bless you.